You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So this new series, Risk, Reward, Wind, and Spirit, we're talking about ultimately what it means for us to live in such a way that we create futures rather than let futures happen. And you can look around and you see we're missing a lot of WCC folks this morning, so um, what I'd encourage you to do, what I'm asking you to consider is those who aren't here, encourage them to listen to what they missed, because I think this could be a meaningful conversation about risky relationships, because that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about risky relationships. And I'm thinking that risky relationships are risky because, well, relationships require vulnerability. Everybody say vulnerability. And that requires that we put ourselves out there and expose ourselves to possibilities of hurt, possibilities of beauty. But let's face it, many of us have had relationships that have gone wrong. And when it has, is it harder to get back into relationships? Yeah, and I'm not even talking about intimate partnerships. I'm talking about even friendships. I'm talking about churches even. You know, when you have these relationships go wrong, it's hard to put yourself back out there and trust the possibility of something going right. And that in and of itself is risky. Now, we've defined risk, if you look at the screen, we define risk of a particular way that is this idea of God doing, of, of allowing God to put us in a position where we have to live what we believe. Sure, if you'll go to that screen, that, that, that slide for me. Putting ourselves in a position, next slide of letting God put us in a position to live what we believe, including doing hard things in the face of what seems impossible. And that is oftentimes really only possible if we trust that there's reward. That reward is, let's read it together, a commitment to the belief that with struggle comes strength and with perseverance comes purpose because God's promises never fail. And the text that's anchoring this for us is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 on the screen. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here's what I mean by all this. We are literally hardwired in our brains for relationship. Like, forget for a minute that we are made in the image of a triune God, a God who within God's own self is relational. But we are wired for what's called attachment in our brain. We have a part of our brain that seeks to attach to another, that wants to be known and revealed, that wants to know and to receive what is revealed. We are literally hardwired for this. And what I believe God is saying to us, as people who are made in the image of the triune God, that if we commit ourselves to this journey of being willing to have relationships, friendships, and all forms of relationships, that God will honor that, and that God will bring blessing into our lives for that. Now, there may have to be some healing involved, but for that healing to happen, it's going to require what? Vulnerability. And that makes relationships what? Risky. And that can be hard. Proud of the problem a lot of times is that we center our relationships on roles and positions. Everybody say roles and positions. And what I mean by that is a lot of times relationships are socially constructed 
meaning society's values and standards and expectations become the hands and the feet that form our understanding of what it means to be you know, a man or what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a leader or what it means to be a whatever, whatever the role is, what it means to be in our skin, whether it's gender, class, race, or age. Here's what I mean. So like, for example, for the longest time and even to this point, that for some, to be a man, to be a good man, to get, the, get it good before man. A lot of times we think, okay, someone needs to be a provider for their family. A good man provides for his family. A good man leads his family. And those belief systems come from outside of ourselves called society and forms us and says, a good man does these things. So if a man doesn't do those things the way society says do those things, he's no longer what? A good man. Or it may even say that men don't go get pedicures and manicures because pedicures and manicures are reserved for who? Women. And so men who don't who go get pedicures and manicures get their man card pulled. Right? Like we have these constructs. We have those constructs that all work that are formed by these societal commitments. And if we don't live into those standards, and those standards are built on competencies. Everybody say competencies. Come on, stay with me. In other words, how you perform determines whether or not you're good in relationship. And that is usually role-centered, or it could be position-centered. Position-centered relationships. Since I'm the man, I'm the head of the household, that kind of thing. Or since I'm the pastor, I'm the boss. Woo, Lord, that would be scary. And one of the things I always tried to tell people when I was training people in business is that if you have to remind people you're the boss, guess what? You ain't a boss. If you have to remind people you're the head, guess what? You ain't a head. You attach to somebody's neck, just turning you like a boss. Like, and that, but my point, like, these relationships aren't always sustainable because these relationships are power-based relationships. Everybody say power-based. Role-centered and position-centered relationships are about power. And what ends up happening is we end up jockeying for power. We want to be the head. We want to be the leader. We want to be the answer giver. We want to be the hero. We want to be the listener. We want to be the person you want to call. I want to be for you. Like, that's the thing. Like, that's how we sing it. We want to be for somebody something that they are. Like, we want to be. And so it's really, that relationship is really centered upon me. And that becomes an imbalance. Jesus calls Christians, Christ followers, disciples to something bigger than that. But something that is actually riskier. But there's reward in the risk. Jesus knows that this is going to be a problem. So Jesus has these disciples, James and John. And James and John go to Jesus and say, Jesus, yo, we want to be on your right and your left when you take the throne. And what they're saying is, we want to be your vice presidents of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. And you can't handle it. And then he takes that opportunity and brings all the disciples together and says this. Stay with me. He says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. Say dominate. And their men of high positions exercise power over them. Everybody say power over. But it must not be like that among you. Now I want to pause for a minute. What did these disciples eventually become? The leaders of the church. The apostles. 
the leaders of the church. And Jesus is saying, this kind of way of understanding doesn't need to be in your bones. He says, on the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. That Greek language means slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that Jesus is reframing more than, than leadership. And I think Jesus is talking about something more than serving others with a humble heart. I think what Jesus is doing is he's reframing what it means to relate to others when you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, relating to other citizens of the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is challenging how we relate to others and ultimately how we see ourselves in light of others. We live in a world that centers relationships and roles and positions. And we value competency. And oftentimes, we value competency over character. And you see it in election cycles all the time. Character is a really good thing to have as long as our economy can afford it. Come on now. And you see it play out in other forms. But God never invited God's people to live their lives with an idea of relationships based upon competencies. He wants us to have the character of Christ and let the character of Christ form the competencies needed to be in relationship. What do I mean by that? As a man, I don't live first out of my manhood. I live first out of my baptismal identity. And that may reset your notion of my manhood. So I'm going to wear floral shirts like a boss. Might even get me a mani-pedi after service. I ain't even have one, but they sound nice. And it matters. Because these things are subtle and they change things. So much so that Paul knew that this had to be drilled down in every aspect of relationship all the way down into something called marriage. Now, I want to be very clear with you. I'm going to spend the rest of this time talking about a marriage relationship, but I want to be clear for those of you, all of you here, this entire thing that we're going to talk about applies to all relationships. Everybody say all relationships. Do not get lost in the fact that the context is marriage. Because what Jesus is calling us to is not a marriage ethic. It's to a relationship ethic. And if it's a relationship ethic, that means between you and your friends, you and your buds, you and your cousins, you and your aunts and uncles, you and your moms and fathers and grandmas and uncles, and, and to your intimate partners and spouses. Like, it doesn't matter. The problem in the church is when we start letting the way of the world and the standards and the expectations that society has given, when we let it define how we see things. And you see it in the church with notions like biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. There is no biblical manhood and there is no biblical womanhood. There's Christ-like humanhood. That's what there is. And every other measure comes out of Christ-like character. But in our effort, because our imaginations are too small, everybody say too small. Our imaginations are too small. We don't want to do the hard work of boiling down the big ethic down into the bottom line concrete relationship that we're in. So we opt for biblical manhood books and biblical womanhood books and ignore Christ-like humanhood, which sets all of that in its own place. 
Which is why I think Paul wrote this in Ephesians 5. He starts off in Ephesians 5 verse 1 and he says, Therefore, read it with me, be imitators of God. So first off, imitate Jesus. That's our standard. Not Titus 2, Philippians, whatever. Not a verse, but a person. Not words on a page, but the word that became flesh revealed to us on a page. That's the standard. And then he says, as dearly loved children. Say, I'm somebody's sibling. Say it. You are, because in Christ, you're my sibling. Allison, who is my wife, is first and foremost, as gross as this feels, my sibling, which is why I like to lose language sister, because that's just a little too close on. She's my sibling in Christ before she's my wife. Do you think about that? So then how I love her is not, my starting point is not as a husband. My starting point is as a son of God with a sibling of God who happens to be my wife. The, the primary ethic is bigger. And so Paul says, and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. And then so what Paul does is he unpacks this a little more and then he gets to verse 15. And this is important. He says, so pay careful attention then how you walk, not as unwise people, but as what? As wise. Because you need to make the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit. And then listen to this. Next slide. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read this last line with me. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the whole church is called to a word that has a lot of baggage. The word is what? Submission. The word has a lot of baggage because it's associated with so much hierarchy, so much abuse. It's when, when submission is about role-centered, power-oriented relationships, position-oriented relationships, submission becomes subordination. But listen to me. In the biblical tradition, submission is not subordination. We're called to mutual submission. Everybody say mutual submission. So then I'm called, if Allison is my sibling in Christ before she's anything else in my life, then what am I called to do with her? To submit. And what is she called to do with me? Now, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I'm following Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, then I become a safe person for her to submit to. But if I'm not, then that's a risk on her part. You with me? Submission is not subordination. It is mutuality. Now, everybody agrees with that because you see it up here. And here's the crazy thing about the Bible. Because the very next verse is the verse that gets quoted at weddings the most. And it's not up here, but you know what it is. The very next word, wives, submit to your husbands. And then all the men are like, what? But where does that flow out of? Look at it again. Submitting to what? It is ironic to me because this becomes the dominant ethic. So wives submit to husbands, but what are husbands supposed to do? 
Submit to wives. Because you know what the kingdom of God calls us to? Mutual submission. But when we pull the Bible out of context and we start trying to build kingdom of God values out of social society traditional values, we end up twisting kingdom of God values and missing the context of the whole thing. Marriages are built on mutual submission. Friendships are built on mutual submission. Dating relationships are built on mutual submission. Christian relationships are built on mutual submission. All relationships for the Christian is to have an ethic that goes toward mutual submission. Which means then, we have to find for ourselves people with whom we can be trust entrusted to because that is our ethic. But then we have to be people that are trustworthy with others. Are you with me? Now, what I want to do is I want to boil this down. So I want to, I want to be clear. This is across all relationships. So to my fellas, if you've been told that the man's supposed to be the head of the household, that might be true for people who are not citizens of the kingdom of God. But for citizens who are kingdom of God, Christ is the head of the household. And you are to submit to Christ and submit to your wife. And your wife is to submit to you as their wife submits to Christ. Because in the kingdom of God, marriages are committed and all relationships are supposed to be committed to mutual submission. It is why Jesus said to his disciples, you shouldn't want that kind of life. Power dynamics and jockeying for power doesn't work. Because if you have to win, guess what else has to happen? Somebody has to what? So where does all that come from? It comes more from American value system than it does the kingdom of God value system. Because this text has always been before the other text that gets read all the time. So what I wanted to do was just to kind of illustrate that in my own marriage. Because it would be easy for me to stand up here and talk about it. And then you got to decide whether or not you believe me and whether or not I'm telling the truth. So for that reason, Allison's going to come up. Come on, babe. <laughs> <laughs> Mom Verda said, tell him. You go on and tell them. <laughs> Just be careful what you tell. <laughs> so I was raised in South Georgia, deep South Georgia, in poverty by a two-family, two-parent family. We moved from Florida to Alabama to Georgia at any given point in time. We moved from trailer park to trailer park, or maybe apartment to trailer park, or trailer park to apartment. And as a result of that, I didn't really have a lot of stability in relationships. When my mom was surprisingly pregnant with my twin sisters, I was 13 years old, and my mom was so sick, I had to raise my sisters. So at 13, I woke up every three hours to feed my sisters, twins, and to care for my sisters and put them to bed. When my mom was healthy, she would take one, I would take the other. My dad was always working at 3.30 and 4 o'clock in the morning. At 13, I had to get a job. So I, went to, I woke up with my sisters throughout the night. I went to school. I came back. I went and got a job. I came back home, and I did it all over again. Every now and then, I could play sports. And then when I turned 15, I had to get two more jobs because I had to help make bills meet for my family, and I had to buy my own car and do all these things. So I don't really know relationships all that well. And I could see that growing up. But then I met her, and she's really good at relationships. And so... How, uh, describe a little bit about your childhood growing up so they can know. All right. 
So first off, I do exist. First service did not know that I actually existed. Um, so hi, I'm Allison. I'm married to Fred. Um, I grew up in a very traditional home. Um, I had two very loving Christian parents. Um, I was very close to my parents. My um, parents, it took them 15 years to have me. They had infertility issues. And so we just had a very special, unique bond. Um, I was dearly loved by them. Um, my dad, when I was seven, um, was diagnosed with colon cancer. And so for about a year and a half, I spent a lot of time with four particular families that were close friends of ours. I didn't grow up with grandparents. Um, I didn't have a lot of family. And so friendship just kind of became the lifeline for how I was raised. Um, for about a year and a half, my mom and dad were constantly in, the, in and out of the hospital. And so these four families helped raise me. And um, because of that, we all lived in the same neighborhood and all of our backyards connected. And it was just a really beautiful expression, I think, of neighborhood and community. And what it showed me um, really was that family was just an extension of whoever is part of your world, whoever cares for you and loves you. And um, that was a, a gift to me. I didn't realize then, looking back, it's been a huge formation um, in my life and how I view people and friendship, for sure. And so then... We meet, um, and we come from very different backgrounds at this point, right? Very different backgrounds and very different experiences. Um, and she sees me and finds that I'm extraordinarily attractive <laughs> and wants to date me. Um, He's preacher talk right now. <laughs> <laughs> These are preacher exaggerations. Um, so we start dating and, you know, I'm formed from the, point, from the standpoint that men are the heads of the homes. Men are the spiritual leaders. And the women, if you have a wife, she, she takes care of the kids. She stays at home. And that's how I understood it to be. But I understood that my role as a male, because of my biology, that I was, that I was the head of all of that. And so we're dating. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be the head. And so we sit down on the couch, and I want to lead her in a Bible study. So I say, hey, I want to I do a Bible study. And I start to teach. And then she says to me, um, I don't need you to be the te my teacher. You're not going to teach me in a Bible study. We're going to do it together. And that's when I remember, wait a minute. She got, she got some thoughts. And she's got some opinions and some voice. Um, and so we got married. And <laughs> there was a lot of other stuff that had to happen <laughs> before we got married. <laughs> So we spent a lot of time unwinding all that. <coughs> and then after about 18 days of marriage. Um, so my mom was diagnosed then with pancreatic cancer. I should say that my dad died when I was nine. So then I was raised by my mom just as a single mom. Um, she did remarry when I was 12 to a wonderful man. Um, dearly, dearly love my stepdad. He's still alive. Um, but my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when I was um, 26. We had been married about 18 days. And I looked at Fred at one point, we were in the hospital, um, because I was her medical proxy and I was her power of attorney, and so I made all of the decisions based on um, her medical well-being. I looked at Fred and said, I've been a wife for three weeks. I've been a daughter for 26 years, and so what I know right now is to be a daughter. I don't really know how to merge these two things together, as now I'm primary caregiver of my mom. 
um, and then also a, a brand new wife. So this whole first year of our marriage was unpacking a lot of those things because she died eight months later. And um, we had a lot to just kind of figure out as far as um, wifehood and... Husbandhood and right. life together. Because now her parents are deceased, and now we're going to go through all the first times without her parents' involvement. My mom is still very unwell, and um, my relationship with my parents is a little odd. And uh, within that first year of marriage, when her mother passes, I then get fired from this church that had been with me through the darkest hours of my life. This church that I had loved and that had loved me so well, a disagreement arose between me and an elder, and the elder won. And it was a power play, and that's fine. Um, but now we are first-year marriage, going through, some, going through an immense amount of grief. I had fallen in love with her mother, grew to love her mother so much. And now we are first-year marriage, bought a house without a job, um, very displaced, very disoriented, and very much not knowing what it even means to be in relationship with each other because I have this grieving wife, and now I have these feelings where I can't, I, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, and we don't know what we're doing with our marriage. And we spent this time trying to figure out what it meant to love each other well. And I remembered as I was studying scripture that the Bible calls husbands and wives co-heirs. Everybody say co-heir. That they become co-heirs. And that began to change how I thought about Allison and marriage. I was like, wait a minute, she's my co-heir. And then I remember reading Galatians chapter 3 a different way. It's up here on the screen. And it says that we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus For all of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I started recognizing that Allison's identity primarily is out of her baptism. My identity is primarily out of my baptism. And that makes us now equals. Full on equals. So then we had to figure out how to be equals in a marriage where we were formed and raised to have very defined roles. What was that like? Um, So my mom was born in 1944, so I was raised by someone who was raised in the 40s and 50s. Um, I was born in 1977, and so I was born more in the 80s and 90s. And so she and I were very different just by virtue of culture um, and societies and how we were raised. But she was um, very strong in um, traditional roles of womanhood. However, because I had been raised by a single mom, there's things that she didn't realize I was learning, like fortitude and strength through suffering. And I had um, a really strong voice and really strong opinions about life and how I wanted to see it happen. And so I had to figure out that that didn't go away just because I got married. I had been taught that Fred would be the head of our home. However, I knew that we had strengths and weaknesses that needed to merge because there were things that were strong about him that were weak about me and vice versa. And how do we put this together so that there isn't some kind of odd power dynamic that wasn't necessary for us? And so we discovered what that was. And I started to realize that mutually like submitting to Allison would require more an act of resistance in me. And learning how to trust her to be the strength that she was at any given moment. There are times where she is just wiser than me, like most. And then there are times where she's stronger than me and better at things than me. And so I don't lead our family. We lead our family. 
and we lean into one another's strengths. And what requires is for me to be willing to admit that I'm not strong or that I'm not the one who can make that decision or that determination. And this for us was not theoretical because our lives shifted from year one. And everything we knew about what we thought was going to be our life together completely changed. And so our lives look on the surface pretty traditional. Yeah, they do. Um, Fred can't cook at all. And though I hate it, I do know I how mean, to cook. I can, like, make waffles <laughs> in a toaster. In a toaster. Um. <laughs> Don't hate. <laughs> but we did take on very traditional roles. Um, I'm very detail-oriented when it comes to our home. I just... It makes sense to me. And so things like cooking and cleaning and laundry and making sure Ian's where he's supposed to be, he's our son, um, whenever he needs to have his schedule set, those are all things that I just naturally, instinctively do. I do it without thinking. Um, when Fred has to do those things, <laughs> it falls apart. So it ain't pretty. <laughs> there are very distinctive roles that we take that look extremely traditional on the outside. And we started talking about this a number of years ago, and Fred said something about how we had more of an egalitarian marriage. And I said, we do? Because <laughs> I had taken a role and made that what marriage is defined by and not taking it as character and competency is formed by Christ through our humanness, um, I had made it into a role. And that was a big shift for me because as I looked back, we absolutely have an egalitarian marriage. Um, my voice is heard, always has been. I never actually considered it wouldn't be. Um, <laughs> That's right. That was like, she like, why would it not be heard? And I'm, I'm grateful for that because I've always had that security, I suppose, that he would listen and submit um, when I said things. And vice versa. I don't, have to be, I don't have to live the life where I have a death by a thousand cuts, where I constantly have something to prove to my wife. And I feel these where my insecurities have to surface up without having to be able to voice them with her. I don't have to be a man. I just have to love Allison. Amen. Come on now. Y'all hearing me? And like, and that's, that's, the, that's the thing. Like, I have to love Allison in the way that my Christ has shown me, not the way that my dad or my granddad taught me. Amen. And nothing, no, no disrespect to my dad and my granddad's teaching, but they're not Jesus. And so I had to set out for that. And she had to set out for that. And y'all know, like, I'm a little extra. So she had to, like, she could get a lot of jewels in her crown, head all be weighted this way in glory, trying to love me. The Lord's like, I bless you with suffering for the rest of your life and like that's like that's like that's been the journey of each other is, is learning how to love each other within the within a commitment of an ethic of mutual submission where there are times where I just like I just want to submit to her leadership in something and I'm not talking about just the paint on the walls but like I don't care what the paint color on the walls are I love color and I have an opinion but that's something she values more than me I submit to that Right? Like there are things and vice versa. And that's very trite. There are also views and ways of understanding the world and how to raise a kid and how to love um, Ian or how to love Javari or how to love our friends or how to vacation and all these different things. Because we had very different upbringings where she went on vacations all the time. We couldn't afford vacations. 
And things like that have been things we've had to, to talk about. Vacations were important to me because as I grew older, those were the memories I had of family. I had nothing else. And so I haven't been able to make memories since then. So I think that knowing things like that, he had to kind of learn to understand me and how my mind worked, not the situation. Um, vice versa. I've had to do the same with him. Yeah. And so I've never had to set out with Allison on how to understand, quote, women and how to be a, quote, man. I've only set out to how to understand Allison and how to love Allison. And Allison's only had to set out to how to learn how to love me and understand me, which then sorts out a lot of the confusion that sometimes even the church creates with all of our notions of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And so here's the thing. If traditional roles work for you, fine. That's not a, this isn't about roles, and that's the point. But if those roles have been defined for you as the centerpiece, and there's no mutual submission within your marriage, then I would suggest we have work to do. When I do a lot of premarital, and when I do a lot of marriage counseling with couples, I point them first to that Philippians 2 text. Which, what did it say? That Jesus, who is God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be held on to his own advantage, but in every way submitted himself and emptied himself for our good. And then I point marriages to the 50-something one another commands. If you want a practical way to heal your friendships, your dating relationships, or a practical way to heal your marriage, or a practical way to parent your kids, you have over 50 one another commands that you can practice. Honor one another more above yourself. Look out for the interest of others more than you even just do your own. Encourage one another daily. Live into the practices of the one another commands. And you will cultivate a marriage, I think, that is learning mutual submission. We haven't got this figured out yet. Like, we're still learning what all this means. Especially as Ian gets older and as we get older and as life changes. But we are committed to the journey of mutual submission. Am I right? Now, there's one interesting dynamic that, that shifts me and Allison in a specific way. There is an assumption that she is the pastor's wife. Are a minister's wife. Now, she happens to be married to Fred Ligon, who happens to be a minister and a pastor. But I'll tell you this. My interview at WCC, when I first met with them, one of the other things I said to WCC search committee was, you're not getting a two-for-one deal. My wife, Allison, is not going, you remember this way? She's not going to lead your family ministry, your flower ministry. She's not going to lead your wedding ministry. She's not going to play your organ and keyboard, <laughs> right? You were there. She's not going to serve your communion ministry. She's going to be Allison Glenn Ligon, who finds her own ministry like every other Christ follower in the church. You want to talk more about that? <laughs> sure. Um... I think oftentimes people form typologies, right, of roles. We just do. And we don't necessarily mean to, but we determine in our minds what that typology is going to look like. And I was quite determined um, not to be a typology, but to be a person. Mm. And you sometimes have to fight for that. You sometimes have to fight for that when you're married to a pastor. Um, and so my individuality or what I saw as my passions or callings in ministry. I've worked um, 
pretty hard. And Fred's been so wonderfully supportive of that. And I've had to be comfortable in my own skin with it and, and feel secure in what I believed God was teaching me as his daughter first um, to, to follow that calling where he led it. And um, in that, sometimes I can sound quite flippant. Like I get asked the question often, actually, what's it like to be a pastor's wife? And I can sometimes be like, oh, I really could care less. Um, but I don't mean it in a rude way. I mean it in a... His faith, my faith, is not determined um, or dependent upon him. It's very enhanced by Fred, but it is not dependent upon him. Therefore, him being a pastor or he could be a dentist, it wouldn't matter. Our faith is who we are, and we would, I think, still find our way into every part of ministry that we do currently. Yeah, Um, that's the key. And so it's been very important to me. And sometimes I've fought that in ways that I didn't have to. I came on stronger than I needed to. But it was that important to me to not become some typology. So I'll say, well, I know what it's like to be married to Fred, but I'm not going to explain to you what it's like to be married to a pastor because that's not the role. That's not the life that we live at all. I tried to get her to call me Pastor Fred at home, but it didn't work. Again, preacher talk. <laughs> I, think, I think for us, like one of the reasons why I wanted to bring Allison up is because she's better at relationships than I am. And she just always has been. And I've learned more about what it means to be a friend through her. Um, and I, I, she is... She's always sought to love me like a child of God first who happened to be a male who happened to be her husband. And I think I've tried to do the same with her. And if I'm reading the Bible right, Allison, regardless of her gender, has all the same divine privileges that I do regardless of my gender. Therefore, in the kingdom of God, there is not only equality, there is equity. And if our relationships, whether within marriage or whether within friendship, does not reflect a spirit of equity. Y'all hearing me particularly, brothers? A spirit of equity toward our sisters. Then we have some work to do in understanding what it means to be mutually submissive to the other in the room. Society pushes back on every bit of this, especially with manhood, manhood stuff. And... That's what makes this kind of way of life, of way of being in relationship risky. But I will tell you that I wouldn't have it any other way. Because I know that my wife sees me first and foremost as a child of God and as a sibling in Christ. And that guards her behaviors as it guards my behaviors. As it changes how we fight and how we argue, it changes how we disagree. That we don't have to have something to prove. And I guess that would be the last thing. What makes mutual submission in our marriage hard? And I mean, be candid. Other than me. Well, we're both very strong-minded. I'm not strong-minded at all. Um, (laughs) He's strong-minded outwardly. I'm strong-minded inwardly. Um, You wouldn't necessarily just know that about me. And so we both have very strong opinions. We both have a very particular way of how we see the world. We always say we're in the same book, but we're rarely in the same chapter, and we have to kind of find our way there because we respond very differently to the world around us. 
So I think that probably is the hardest thing with our mutual submission is um, submitting and understanding just how one another views something, not feeling threatened, feeling mm. Mm. or allow yourself to be vulnerable in those moments. Um, and not feeling like we have to agree on everything. Exactly, because we don't. No. And we kind of land at that, I think, in a good way, but that is the risk. And I think the reward is that it can work. In a life-giving way. Yeah, very much so. And so I, I wanted to have Allison up because I wanted her to just give the behind-the-curtain look, and I felt like her voice would make more sense than mine. But I also wanted you to see um, that, at least from our life, this is possible, even if in your world it seems very improbable and maybe even in some ways impossible. And if you're trying to figure this out, then find someone or be with people. Be with someone. Be with friends. Be with uh, intimate partners. Be with people that you feel like you can entrust yourself to. And then also be a person who is trustworthy with another. And let Christ form you in that way. And if you need practical things to do, then just do the one another commands. There have been times in our season of marriage where I haven't been the easiest to love. And there are times where I wanted to make things complicated and fall into a trap of having something to prove. And what I chose to do was first and foremost, as cliche as it sounds, to be prayerful and ask God to remind me that above all things, Allison is God's child first. And that she's been entrusted to, by God to me to love. And then I practice the one another commands the best I can. And at that point, you'll see that the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit said God will do. And the fruit of the Spirit will actually become love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and on. But it requires a commitment to seeing first and foremost that your relationship partners, spouse or not, is a co-heir of the kingdom of God. And every week, thanks babe, thanks for doing this. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.